Welcome to the Burn Your Mortgage Podcast, a Canadian real estate podcast that shows you how to pay off your mortgage sooner and live well while doing it. Now, here's your host, Sean Cooper. Welcome to the Burn Your Mortgage Podcast. I'm Sean Cooper, and it's great to be back for another episode. On today's show, I'll be talking to Danielle Cubis. Danielle is a millennial personal finance journalist and blogger. She eats an avocado every day because she will never be able to afford a house in Toronto anyway. You can catch her trying to improve the financial literacy of Canadians without making them hate their lives on Twitter and Facebook. In my interview with Danielle, we discuss why Hamilton is a good long-term investment for real estate, getting a mortgage when you're self-employed, and the best ways to make Canadians more financially literate. Without further ado, here's my interview with Danielle Cubis. Hi, Danielle. How are you doing today? I'm good. How are you, Sean? I'm pretty good. Thanks. You're a millennial who was determined to own a property. Why were you so driven to own real estate? Why does home ownership matter so much to you? So I wouldn't say that home ownership in itself matters so much to me, but it's more so about having a long-term investment and having an income stream matters to me. My goal has always been to earn as much passive or near passive income as possible. And although I love stocks and invest in them, I really wanted to diversify my assets and buy something tangible. I'm really concerned about a zombie apocalypse. And so I really wanted a place to run to if I needed. (laughs) Are you being serious? Yeah, I'm being totally serious. You know, I think there's a lot of like scary things happening in the world right now. And I feel like having a house and having like a place in my name would be useful if the zombies, you know, take over. I'm just curious, growing up, were your parents homeowners? How long ago did you kind of have that idea of being a homeowner one day? I grew up in a home that my parents owned. My parents lived in an apartment for maybe six months when they first got married. And then home ownership was really important to them. And so they purchased a home. And growing up, it was always like in my mind assumed I would one day own a home. It was just kind of like what I assumed adults did. I didn't really know anyone renting when I grew up or even really like living in an apartment. Like I just always assumed and had this vision like, you know, when you're older, you buy a house and that's how you start your life. But obviously I grew up in Toronto and it's where I currently live. And that's become just increasingly like unattainable for me and for many of my friends. So I've managed to kind of separate that emotional attachment and I no longer feel emotionally attached to owning a home in which I also live. And on the topic of affordability, How did you manage to come up with your down payment since it's so difficult to come up with the down payment these days with the rent levels where they are? And what tips can you offer for those struggling to save? Yeah, so I would say firstly that my down payment wasn't outrageously expensive compared to what it would have been if I had purchased in Toronto because I did purchase a small bungalow in Hamilton where the average detached house is less than the price of the average Toronto condo literally like so wow <laughs> yeah so my down payment 
was a sum that I felt comfortable saving. And it, it's really unlikely that I would have been able to save for a down payment for any Toronto property. So I put down 10% on my bungalow in Hamilton, and that was about $35,000. And so like, I'm a freelance writer. I don't make very much money. So I did have a lot of family support. My brother contributed $10,000 and my mother contributed an additional $10,000 in exchange for equity when I sell. But the down payment itself was really only a fraction of the amount I needed to save. After closing costs and setting up the house for renters, my total outlay was $51,000. So people often don't think about that, but you do need a chunk of change beyond your down payment. So in total, I personally paid $31,000. And I am naturally a good saver, but I also had a lot of privileges for example, I didn't have university debt, so I was able to save immediately upon getting a job. And I also like got a lot of kind of cash gifts from my grandparents, my aunts and uncles for birthdays growing up. And I always just like saved that and had the discipline not to spend that. So the honest answer I have, which is probably like not an answer that is applicable to a lot of people, but like to have a supportive family and the discipline to put away money every month and not touch it. And for those who are really doing it 100% by themselves, it's extremely hard. And like, I actually don't really know anyone who has purchased a property except for maybe you, Sean, by themselves. <laughs> Everyone I know has gotten help from their parents either through a cash gift or being able to live at home and save most of their income, or maybe they're married and have dual income. The best advice I have is really just to come up with a financial plan. You have to figure out how much you need for a down payment and then figure out how much you need to save every month in order to come up with that down payment and closing costs in the timeline that you want. And then once you have that figure, you need to automatically transfer it out of your bank account and basically never touch it. So it really comes down, in my opinion, to math. Yeah, definitely. And I think that buying a home is more and more kind of a family affair. It's not just something that you necessarily need to do on your own. So if your parents aren't in the financial position to necessarily gift you money towards your down payment deposit or closing costs, at least if they can let you live at home rent free or charge you an amount that's below market value, then it can give you that leg up that you need to come up with the money to buy a property. So certainly there are ways that your parents, if they're generous enough to help you out, that they can help you out with. But certainly it is challenging to buy property alone, but it's not impossible. You just kind of need to make savings a priority. And as the old saying goes, pay yourself first. But yeah, it certainly helps if you have a supportive family, I find. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think more and more as housing prices have climbed, it has become extremely difficult to do it on your own. And I think even in our parents' generation, I think it's a myth that they did it on their own. They also had a lot of help from their parents. So it is a big purchase a home. And I think a lot of parents want to see their children in a home. And a lot of parents are willing, if they're able, to help out with that. Even if it's like you said, letting them live at home in order to accumulate more savings. Many first-time home buyers purchase a condo in the city. You purchased a rental property in a neighborhood city of Toronto. How did you come to this decision and why do you see Hamilton as a good long-term investment? Mm -hmm, yeah, so that's an interesting question and it really comes down to the fact that I don't have an interest in owning a condo. I just have this, this I almost despise maintenance fees, to tell you the truth. They just really rub me the wrong way. And You're not so, alone. 
yeah, like the condo lifestyle, I just don't feel is suited for me. You know, just the fact that maintenance fees rise every year, sometimes they're, you know, 700, 800, $1,300. And to me, that's about what I pay in rent right now. So to pay that just for maintenance, just, yeah. So for me, I was really focused, I guess, on a house. Like that's just what I wanted. And for me, buying a house in Toronto wasn't possible with the amount of money I was able to save. So I started looking in the neighborhoods around Toronto and my goal with um, purchasing this investment property was always to reduce risk as much as possible. So my goal is to buy a property in which I would be able to live if I needed to, like, let's say I couldn't find tenants. So I could move there because I currently just rent. I don't own in Toronto. So I was like, okay, like where is somewhere that I would want to live? Right. And I felt like Hamilton just fit the bell. There's a lot of movement happening from Toronto to Hamilton. Like a lot of what made Toronto so cool about five years ago, a lot of that stuff has actually moved to Hamilton as Toronto's rents for commercial buildings even have gotten more expensive. So Hamilton is kind of like what Ossington was five years ago. You know, it's like artists have moved there. The chefs have moved there. It's urban. It has old Victorian housing stock. It's walkable. It just seemed like a city that was capturing the overflow of Toronto while still being a city in itself, not just a bedroom community or suburb of Toronto. It has its own character. And I was attracted to that. Yeah, I definitely think Hamilton is going through a renaissance now. And with the affordability of Hamilton, especially with the mortgage stress test, it's certainly an option for people looking to buy a property. Even if they don't intend to live there, at least they can buy a rental property and start building up that equity. And then once they've built up enough equity, perhaps they can buy a property in Toronto later on. So it's good to know at least there are options there if you aren't able to afford a property in Toronto right away. Yeah, there's actually options all around Toronto. You know, Hamilton's not the only city. There's also Brantford, there's Innisfil. So there are pockets where home ownership is more in line with people's incomes. Yeah, I guess the great thing about Hamilton is that they're going to be extending full GO train service there. So it'll be a lot easier to commute into Toronto going forward in the coming years. So I certainly think that makes Hamilton that much more attractive. Mm -hmm, Exactly. That new GO station was a big factor in my decision-making process. Great. So yeah, I mean, if they end up building that rapid uh, train to London, Ontario, I certainly think that it will help that real estate market as well. Mm -hmm, Absolutely. Great. So some millennials are choosing to rent instead of buy. They're discouraged by the high home prices in big cities like Toronto and Vancouver. Why shouldn't younger folks give up on the dream of home ownership? And what are some creative ways to get into the real estate market? I mean, you've mentioned one that you've done, but do you have any other ideas for creative ways? Mm -hmm. So you're probably not going to like this answer, Sean, but I absolutely do not think it's necessary to buy into the so-called dream of home ownership. You know, I still rent in Toronto and plan on doing so for the future, like as really as long as I can foresee, unless there's a huge correction in the market. I don't think it's a good idea to twist yourself into knots and bend over backwards in order to buy in Toronto. I really think that unless you can comfortably afford a home, you shouldn't buy one. And by comfortably, I mean all outlays, all expenses, including maintenance, property taxes, utilities, mortgages, should all be under 50% of your total household income, take home pay after taxes, but like really ideally 30%. So that means if you're taking home $1,000 a month after taxes, 
you should only be spending $300 of that on your housing, your total housing costs. And if you're spending more, you are probably going to find your lifestyle is going to be really cramped, especially if you have kids. Yeah, like I would say the, the dream of home ownership, it sh- should remain a dream in many cases and people should kind of just like accept the reality that they may have to leave the city or may have to rent for a very long time. That was some great advice that you provided about ensuring that you're not house rich and cash poor because that's not a fun situation where all your money is going towards your house and you can't afford to ever have any fun. So I certainly wouldn't recommend anyone living like that. But as you mentioned, if you can't afford to buy in Toronto, there are affordable markets around the GTA or there are affordable markets around other big cities in the rest of Canada, whether it's Calgary or Vancouver. So there are certainly options to get into the real estate market. And with the trend towards companies letting you work at home, that might be an arrangement that works for you. As I mentioned, one of my coworkers recently moved to Ottawa because he couldn't afford the high real estate prices in Toronto. So he's able to purchase a property in Ottawa and still continue to work for my company. So I guess the point that I want to make is it's still possible to get into the real estate market. Uh, You just have to get a bit more creative these days because the math doesn't really necessarily work in your favor for buying in a big city like Toronto or Vancouver. Mm -hmm, Exactly. I think it's really time Canadians realize that there are a lot of places to live outside Toronto. And this is kind of ironic for me to say because, you know, I was born here, my whole family's here. Like, it's a lot harder for me to leave than a lot of people who have moved here just for work or school. But there are so many places like Saskatchewan, Manitoba, Edmonton, you know, Halifax, Thunder Bay that have amazing job opportunities and really affordable houses. So, you know, Toronto and Vancouver are definitely not the only places to live in Canada. And if someone truly has this like vision of their life, with a home, a home that they own, they really either need to consider finding higher paying work or moving to a different city. I totally agree with that. Besides being a homeowner, you're also a landlord. And you wrote a great article on five things I learned in my first year owning a rental property. Can you share some of those with our listeners? Mm -hmm. So I think I mentioned this previously, but for me, money is really math. Like money just is math. It's numbers. And when you are thinking of buying an investment property or becoming a landlord, it's really absolutely essential to run the numbers. You need to know exactly what you're spending. You need to know exactly what you need to be charging for rent in order to cover your costs. You need a plan to make sure that your risk is reduced if you don't get tenants for a few months or if the whole market crashes, and then you need to be organized. I'm a big believer in spreadsheets, in scanning your receipts. You need to really treat your investment property like a business because that's what it is. It is a business. And there are probably a lot of speculators and investors who are you know, first-time speculators. They see people doing really well and so they buy a condo in Toronto and they rent it out and they get themselves into all sorts of messes or they buy a house, whatever. And I think a lot of that can be avoided if people focus on the numbers. People are buying properties in which they're confident that they can charge rents, which are going to cover all their costs. And I definitely encourage people to take a look at properties in the area that they are thinking of buying in 
and see how much other people are renting out those properties for and run the numbers yourself and make sure that the property will be cash flow positive because you don't want to find out after you've already purchased the property that you can't even charge enough rent to cover the basic expenses of the property. So certainly encourage people to do the homework ahead of time. And that way there aren't any nasty surprises later on when they find out that the property is cash flow negative. Mm -hmm. And I think there was actually a study that came out that said most people who own condos in Toronto and rent them out are cash flow negative. And that's because they're probably already wealthy. They're probably second or third time investors and they just don't really care that much. You know, they're just waiting for appreciation, but for small time, you know, first time investors, even a hundred dollars deficit a month does add up. And so you really need to make sure it's all balanced. That's great advice. Now, getting a mortgage is more challenging when you're self-employed. Can you walk us through the process of how you're able to buy a property despite being self-employed? Yeah, again, 100% family support. I don't think any bank would really lend me the full amount of a mortgage. You know, I'm a freelance writer, so my uncle very kindly co-signed for me. But I did hear the rules for the self-employed are changing this year, so that is good news if you are currently self-employed. Yeah, they're making it easier for people who are self-employed to get a mortgage if they've had their business for two years or under. And I definitely think that's a welcome change because certainly there is more risk with somebody who's self-employed getting a mortgage, but I just think it's kind of ridiculous how many hoops they have to jump through and how much documentation they need to provide. So at least now CMHC is being a bit more lenient in terms of the documents that you can provide to prove your income. So that's definitely a a welcome change because with more of the workforce moving towards being self-employed, statistics have shown over the year, I certainly think it makes sense to make it easier for people who are self-employed to get a mortgage. Otherwise, the rate of homeownership will drop over the coming years if there's not a change. Uh, That's kind of how I see it playing out. Yeah, like I said, I kind of was lucky enough to skip that whole process through getting a co-signer. A huge like boon to me and I'm very grateful for that. Yeah, and I mean, some people graduate from school and let's say that they're trying to become a doctor and they have a huge medical student loan or medical line of credit, they might have difficulty getting a mortgage, but at least there's options in terms of a co-signer to help get you a, a mortgage despite all that debt. So the message is there are certainly still options out there. So don't necessarily give up if you're determined to own a property. There are ways to make it work. So just speak with a mortgage broker and they can lay out the ways to still own a property and perhaps make your situation work. Mm -hmm. Yeah, kind of like you said, like I was extremely determined to own a property. It was just really something I wanted to do to provide myself this future stream of income. And like I said, own a tangible asset. And so I really, you know, kind of bulldozed my way through the process. You know, like I got a lot of help from my family. I like saved my pennies. There's a lot of things that had to come together for me to be able to do that. And I was really obsessed with timing. I was really nervous the market was going to go up, all these new mortgage rules that were coming in. So I was very determined to get it done in a short period of time before that kind of like window of opportunity was taken away from me. And so it can be done, but there are a lot of factors that have to come into play and you have to be very determined making it happen, I would say. 
you know, your determination is definitely very admirable and inspirational for millennials. And it does show them that there is a way to still purchase a property. I went, I went <laughs> so far as to calling it inspirational. I mean, I was very lucky. Oh, don't be modest. Ways, Come on. Yeah. But yeah. Great. So you're also a big supporter of financial literacy. Why does it matter so much to you? And what are the best ways to make Canadians more financially literate? So money is really important. It definitely does not make you happy, but it is important. And so it makes me really sad when my friends feel money is too complicated to understand or they're feeling overwhelmed by it or they're wasting money on needless purchases like ATM fees or banking charges, which are the mean of my existence. I have never paid a bank fee and I hope I never will. <laughs> I really think the best way to make Canadians more financially literate is to make them better at math. I think just demystifying the whole process so that people stop feeling overwhelmed and they stop feeling they don't understand things. So just by really showing them that it's all numbers, like there's, it's like grade two numbers, like adding, subtracting, like it's stuff that they've, they've done before. There's nothing scary about the stock market. There's nothing scary about a car loan. They have a lot more control than they think they do. So I guess the best way to make Canadians more financially literate is to break it down for them. I feel like a lot of Canadians almost feel like they don't have any power. Like the banks have the power and the banks are the good guys and they're there to explain their mortgage, explain their car loan, explain their home equity loan, explain this. And like they're, they'll take control of their portfolio. And I think if Canadians are more confident, I guess like there's a lot of money being spent by big businesses and making Canadians feel overwhelmed and making them feel like they don't have a say and like they can't it's too complicated for them. Like just let us handle it. There's a lot of business in that. And I think that's starting to democratize as we speak, you know, every year it gets more and more like that with the advent of blogs. There's a lot of books now. There's a lot of like people breaking down the process. So I think there's like good things on the way. It's it's like a big question, you know, because Canadians do feel just, they're just so not financially literate. It's such a big mansion to climb, but I think it, it definitely starts in the schools. Like I actually am horrible at math. Like I almost failed grade 10 math. And so I had to go into like the C college math, which is where they teach you about how to get a mortgage and how to get a car loan. And that was like probably the best course, you know, I ever took in high school. It was actually like, applicable to my life as an adult. Exactly. So that for the first staff is making that course, college, college math mandatory for high school students instead of calculus. I totally agree with that. And the great news is that starting this fall, they're actually going to be including a financial literacy course in Ontario high schools at the grade 10 level along with the careers course. So that gives the youth of today the opportunity to be financially literate. But for the people who have already graduated, I would say best piece of advice is you don't have to know everything about mortgages or car loans or about personal finance, but at least if you have a basic understanding, then you can at least make decisions with some sort of confidence because I certainly think that it makes sense to understand the basics of mortgages. I mean, you don't have to understand all the terms and conditions, but if you understand the difference between a fixed and variable rate mortgage and understand the difference between standard charge, collateral charge, basic stuff like that, then it definitely can help make you a more informed consumer 
And that way you can shop around with confidence and work with a professional like a mortgage broker so that you can make an informed decision. So certainly if you don't know everything about mortgages, don't panic or anything like that. But I definitely think it makes sense to read material that is out there, uh, including my book, uh, shameless uh, plug there, but certainly it helps to read information from unbiased sources and at least uh, have some knowledge and make an educated decision with a professional. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like every Canadian who's about to make a big purchase should be doing everything they can to read up as much about it as they can. And it's become so much easier because of the internet, obviously, like you don't have to go to the library anymore, although the library is great. So there is a sense of ownership that Canadians should be taking that initiative to do it. But I think there is still a lot of work to be done from the government and from big businesses and empowering Canadians. Great. So it's been wonderful having you on the show today. Before I let you go, is there anything of interest that you're working on that you'd like to share with our listeners? You can always check out any of my portfolio or my blog at www.daniellekubis.com. Great. Thanks so much for being on the podcast today, Danielle. (laughs) Thanks so much, Sean. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Burn Your Mortgage podcast. Besides being a podcast host and money coach, I'm also a licensed mortgage broker. If you or anyone you know, family, friends, coworkers, or neighbors could ever use any unbiased mortgage advice or a second opinion, feel free to reach out. You can reach me by email at seancooperwriter at gmail.com or you can call or text me at 647-867-3711. Also, be sure to head on over to www.seancooperwriter.com and sign up for my free weekly newsletter. As a small token of my appreciation, you'll be able to download my ultimate mortgage checklist on choosing the perfect mortgage. You can also sign up for a free one-on-one 15-minute money coaching consultation with yours truly. I look forward to hearing from you and helping you burn your mortgage sooner too. Once again, thanks for listening. You've been listening to the Burn Your Mortgage Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe on iTunes and leave a rating. Until next time, happy mortgage burning.